Hello and welcome to the Uncapped Podcast, brought to you by Roast House Pub, one of Frederick's finest craft beer and culinary destinations, where great people come to drink amazing beer. Visit them to track their taps and menu at roasthousepub.com, or download the digital pour app to track what's on tap. I'm your host, Chris Sands, and today we're joined by Jamie Wyndham from Lion Distilling Company. She's one of the co-founders and the operator of the fine place that now specializes in only, well, I guess occasional whiskey, but <laughs> back to your roots in rum. Yes. Uh, thank you for coming out to Frederick and uh, talking to us. Thanks for having me. So first, um, I want to say I, actually, I absolutely love the rum you make. I've told you that many times, but especially the, is that the coffee or just the dark? Just the regular, like, yeah, regular dark rum. Um, the coffee rum is phenomenal, and I love rock and rum. Excellent. I'm glad. That's the only reason I agreed to talk to you is because I only talk to people <laughs> that like my rum. <laughs> um, so I know you touched on a little bit when we were talking before. You've done a lot of cool stuff before you started doing the coolest thing you've done. Um, so why don't you give our listeners a, a little bit of background on where you've come from and how you got to the point of wanting to uh, sling rum for a living. <laughs> sure, sure. I have a, uh, I guess, a very unusual background for uh, owning a distillery, but who doesn't when it comes down to it? Um, most of us don't come from generations of distillers. So the new wave of an American distiller, it, you find a lot of engineers, you find a lot of brewers, you find um, a lot of drinkers. But I started my foray into my career um, as a bartender when I was um, finishing high school and all through college. And so hospitality and people and uh, making things for other people has always been a huge part of who I am. So it was bartending for a very long time um, from Baltimore, where I went to school, to San Diego and uh, Florida, and then kind of across the globe. And then I fell into what was, I think, my my first love, which was writing and then photojournalism. And so I worked as a writer, and then I worked as a journalist um, and photojournalist, and that took me traveling. And so I lived abroad, um, most recently before coming back to the States in Kenya for a couple of years. And I think that helped hone in that desire to eat and drink everything and um, kind of absorb a culture through both its, you know, its traditions, but that pretty much always involves food and drink. So um, my, my palate was perhaps, you know, opened or honed uh, while living in, in Kenya and while traveling to India and South America. And so I moved back to the States now eight, almost eight years ago. Um, and, and, and found myself opening a tiny rum distillery in St. Michael's, Maryland. Um, did you, uh, did you work for someone or were you a freelance? No, I was a freelancer. Okay. Yeah. I worked in, um, in DC predominantly as a photographer. Um, I kind of switched from journalism to photojournalism, um, about, gosh, I, we talked about this earlier. I'm terrible with timelines. Yeah. Um, sometime so in my, in my Probably early thirties. Um, so about, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's been maybe earlier than that. So switched over and, uh, and no, just always worked for different organizations that I felt synergy with. So a lot of nonprofits, um, a lot of documentary work, uh, just telling a story. And, you know, there's there's so many ways to tell a story. And as an artist, you know, whatever your medium is at the time, and for me it was writing, and then it was photography, and now it happens to be spirits. I, I wonder if uh, journal journalism is going to become the new precursor to maybe distilling, because uh, Mark from 10th Ward was a journalist also. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I think that 
a curious mind is a prerequisite for being a distiller or for being a maker of anything, right? So journalists have the most curious mind and they appreciate stories and finding out history and weaving that in. And I think that especially with what's going on in craft spirits right now, there's a lot of new things, but there's also this desire to take something old and make it new again. You know, riffs on classics, uh, traditional recipes made new again. And I think that if you have that desire to learn and kind of uncover where things come from, you can pay homage to what the industry standard has been and then put your own unique twist on it. It's kind of hard to do that without an appreciation for what came before you. So yeah. So that that that's an interesting topic, I think, a little bit where so in craft beer, um, that's almost one hundred percent encouraged and if you're doing the old stuff, maybe even looked down upon mm-hmm. in wine it's almost looked down upon if you are deviating too much mm-hmm. from the history. Where where does that fall in the world of craft distilling or just spirits in general? Is it does it fall into uh, history be damned? Let's do whatever we want, or that you shouldn't be as uh, that you shouldn't throw history away yeah. and stick to the way it's been done. Well, that's such a big question, and I'm not prepared to answer that for every distiller. <laughs> but I think anyone who says history be damned um, is a fool. Uh, I think that uh, history teaches us many lessons, um, but you, we naturally just want to build upon what we already have, right? I think that. One of the reasons I started distillery was because I wasn't satisfied with what the industry standard was. I wasn't satisfied with, say, the rums I could find on the shelf in my liquor store. Um, That doesn't say that there aren't beautiful rums that have been made for hundreds of years that are available globally. But you look for a a hole in the market. You look for something that you can put a twist on. And um, if you can then make it yourself and you make something that excites you uh, while looking to tradition, you know, nodding to what's historically and globally significant, but putting a twist on it, then if you delight yourself, then there might be a group of people who also enjoy what you're making. So I think it's a really delicate blend of both in all areas of art and life. Um, you can't really go in blind and just say, I'm going to reinvent the wheel, yeah. you know, thousands of years after this has been started. But it is interesting. Um, I've never looked at it that way, that brewers, yeah, definitely kind of balk against the standard and uh, winemakers absolutely, you know, want to look to the, you know, it's, it's usually the French, right, way of making wine. Yeah. I'm reading a really great book right now called The Judgment of Paris. I don't know a lot about wine, so it's it's a fun thing for me to spend my time in because I'm so immersed in spirits. Um, but yeah, the California really emulated France in order to make good wine, but then those winemakers had to find ways to further the craft. If you're not furthering the craft or one thing we talk about, you know, my friends in distilling, like adding something to the conversation. If, if you're not doing that, then it's not that interesting. So if you're just making a prototypical bourbon, gin, vodka, rum, then that's fine. It's, it's a, you've made a good offering, but how is yours unique? What makes, what story are you yeah, telling? It's going to be a lot yeah. harder to sell if you're not standing out for some exactly. reason. So I think you have to have the foundations and then you start layering levels and and things on there that are uniquely you either regionally or particular to your taste or your culture or you know something like that what are you adding in that that's something that's it's been said to me a few times by distillers that a big difference between like craft beer and craft distilling is craft beer was is like the anti-big company Mm -hmm. they're making a much better product 
from a flavor and quality standpoint than the titans of the industry that control everything. But in distilling, those the humongous companies that have been around forever and are selling tons, they're not making a bad product. No, not at they're all. They're making the best product. So you can't compete just on quality. You can't say, well, mine's just better than theirs. Exactly. That, that you need to differentiate yourself and have a reason why exactly. you should buy this instead of this distillery that's been around for hundred year, hundreds of years and makes a phenomenal product. Absolutely. And I think that anybody who tries to say otherwise, um, is their ego is getting in the way of, of their, <laughs> yeah. their trade, right? Because we're just, we're just craftsmen, you know, doing something. So I think that, yes, it wasn't about, it wasn't let's make rum in Maryland <laughs> because rum that's out there is awful. It was, hey, we all kind of know what rum is. What if we could make rum that was something a little different? Um, what if we could take the styles that we see and that we're familiar with and make something kind of new? And so that's where I think the birth of something exciting and different comes into play because, no, I, I, I've only been making rum for six years. So there's no way that I'm better, quote unquote, than Bacardi. Yeah. Um, but we are very different. And that's something I always say that we're not, we're not trying to compete. We're just trying to change a couple people's minds about rum because there's some amazing rum out there, but it's not for everyone. So maybe my amazing rum is for those people. Um, and that's also, there's many, many reasons why we don't make bourbon at Lion Distilling, um, which I won't go into. Um, but one of the reasons we always said is there's a ton of phenomenal bourbon out there. What do I have to add to the category of bourbon? We, we didn't feel like we had anything to say. So we made some kind of alt decisions um, with, with our spirit choices. So w when um, planning out opening Lion, w was it, did you just want to focus on rum at that point? And, and why rum? Well, that, is that just what you wanted to yeah, drink? Yeah. Or? Well, to say planning out Lion is to give us a lot more credit than we do. Because <laughs> when we started the distillery, um, you know, we'll be six years in December, uh, Lion Distillery will celebrate six years in business. But there was about a year of, of planning before that, but it was so much less business planning and more strategically just getting open, just opening the doors to what we saw as a very, very tiny project, a two-person operation making literally 30 bottles a week, selling those 30 bottles, starting over again, making <laughs> another 30 bottles. Um, that is, that's, there was no market research. There was no business plan. There were no goals and markers. It was what do we want to make? What's going to be fun and interesting? And then we'll maybe make something else. We knew rum was the focus. Uh, we kind of went back and forth of what to start with, knowing that as any distiller, just like any chef, you're going to want to get creative. You're going to want to play around and experiment. Um, but rum was was the natural choice as the first spirit to distill because of well, because of a couple of reasons. One, we're situated on the Eastern Shore, and it's a very large boating community, and rum is definitely the drink of choice for uh, leisure boaters and competitive sailors, and uh, my co-founder was a sailor, so that just made a lot of sense. Also, being a bit of, you know, a journalist and a history buff, um, or a history enthusiast, I won't give myself that much credit to be a buff, um, rum was the very first spirit that was distilled in any large quantity here in the United States. And so far before, you know, long before we chose bourbon as our national spirit, uh, rum was what was being distilled and drank in large quantities. And so it has this long history. Um, rum is also an interesting category of spirits because there's a lot of creativity and flexibility within the category. It has less rules than many other spirits, which 
is neither here nor there. Some people would like it to have more. But basically, as long as you're distilling the spirit from sugarcane, you can use any type of sugarcane substrate. You can use any type of still. You can age it or not. You can add different flavorings and infusions. And so it looked like a spirit that would be really easy to leave our mark on, to make something very different. Um, and so that's where we started honing in on what would that look like? What would that different recipe be? What did we think no one else was doing? And six years ago, there were not a lot of American rum distilleries. You know, there were a couple of dozen, maybe, and maybe a dozen of those were doing something interesting. Uh, nowadays, there's there's hundreds. Yeah. Um, but when it still we started, it was seem, small. It doesn't seem to be a spirit, though, that a lot of craft spirit distilleries focus on though and like that when, when that breaks my out. heart so the thing is a lot of craft distilleries are making rum now but most of those craft distilleries aren't focusing yeah on rum and that is probably my only pet peeve um as i've said many times i think that whatever people want to do in their space is great uh, however you want to distill whatever spirit you'd like to distill um, whatever your interpretation is because I see it as as an offering of your your booze art to the world and I really try not to judge or put my opinions on anybody else's but the one thing that I'm very against is distillers new distillers that treat rum as a throwaway spirit as a placement holder as for a other stop spirits. Gap. yeah stop gap as, until yeah. you're aged like tell me why you're making for- rum oh we're making rum because it's easy and fast and our whiskey is aging. And when I hear that, I just, I, there's no way I'm putting that rum in my mouth. Yeah. When I hear, when I ask someone, why are you making rum? And they tell me that it's, they, they love the spirit. They have this unique approach to it. It's just really versatile and fun. And they always loved rum. Then I'm excited. Um, I want something that's made with intent. So when we opened, we knew that rum would be our focus and that other spirits might come and go in the lineup. Um, but that we were also going to spend a lot of time honing in on rum and kind of immersing ourselves in the rum world. Because, again, there's people who have been making wonderful rum for centuries, and there's a lot to learn from what they've done and what they haven't done, right? So sometimes it's the things that haven't been done that are interesting to explore, especially when you're as small as we are at Lion. Um, But, yeah, there's much more rum on the market now, but I'm proud to say that we are the only – true 100% rum distillery in Maryland and one of a very few number of 100% rum distilleries in in America. So I didn't drink, it's probably for a good five to 10 years at all. Um, And the first drink I had after was rum. Nice. Because we were were in the Dominican Republic Mm -hmm. for a high school friend's wedding. And there was like Oh, five to six of us that all grew up together that were on this resort. Yeah, yeah. And my one friend and I went up to the swim up bar and I told them, just give me, I can't remember. It was probably mm-hmm. like a coconut drink because that's pretty much what I, everything was. Tropical and fun. Yeah. yeah. And I told him just a little bit of rum because mm-hmm. I was like, I, I don't drink. Can you just put a little bit of rum in? So like he held the bottle vertical above the the drink. He was like hitting it on the top of the, the bottle and just yelling it was a Dominican little bit. Oh, and, yes, yes, yes. And then... Our wives came and finally found us a little while later, and we were, it was probably not safe for us to be sitting in a pool bar <laughs> by that point. Also, it didn't take much at that point, having not had any alcohol right, in right. five to well, ten years. But so rum quite possibly could be the precursor to starting to do this. Uh, you know what? I'll let the category <laughs> take responsibility for all the great things that you're bringing to the, uh, to the booze world and audience. No, I think that um, – 
you know, rum is an interesting spirit. Uh, I always say rum is an underdog. Uh, we're kind of living in a moment where tiki culture and cocktails and rum is having a bit of a resurgence because of the popularity of those things. Um, but in general, there, there are two types of people in the world. There are people who love rum and there are people who hate rum. And the people who say, oh, oh, rum, I, I don't do rum, they had a bad experience. But people can say that about any spirit. Oh, I've had some bad experiences right, with rum, right. but so we always I don't said, hold it against no, it. No, and people do. <laughs> they hold these grudges. And when we opened six years ago, a lot of people would come in. I would say the majority, maybe 80% of people that walked through the doors of our distilleries said, oh, rum, and they were disappointed. And they were like, oh, I don't, I don't like rum. So we made it our mission. We didn't say, oh, people don't like rum. We should make something else. We said, we're going to make people like rum. We're going to make a rum that changes their mind. And I love nothing more in my life. And this is probably the journalist and the photographer <laughs> and the artist in me and the idealist and the philosophy student that loves changing people's mind. Um, and I just happen to do it with rum now. And so we started developing these rums that we have a rum that drinks like a tequila. We have a rum that drinks like a scotch. We have a rum that drinks like a bourbon. We have the rock and rum is a rum old fashioned in a bottle. People are like, what is that? I'm like, try it. And they love it. It's delicious. That's exactly. what it is. So we just put we, some ice in a glass, pour no it work. in there, and sip. No work. So you have a cocktail, you have a, it's 84 proof, it's serious. It, it, it screams to the laziness in me. Yeah. That, like, I know that. It's also in me at the end of the day. You know, do I have fresh oranges to peel? No, not necessarily. Yeah. It's put in the bottle. So we really worked on that. But what's been interesting is it made us better distillers. It made us take care of our customers better by trying to have these really unique spirits to offer them. But now, fast forward six years, I would say 90% of people that come in are like, I love rum. I'm so excited to the point where if we have something else to offer, um, like one of our whiskeys, they say, oh, I'm not interested in whiskey. I'm here for rum. I, I, I really love rum. And that fills my heart. Um, it's very exciting, and it shows what a, what a far way we've come. Whiskey garbage out of my face. Yeah, whiskey's boring. <laughs> um, and it was funny. I was just down at Tales of the Cocktail, and, you know, it's a big spirits convention in, in Louisiana, and there's a ton of products, you know, from every type of spirit you can imagine, and there's all sorts of focuses, and you can go into different rooms to try different spirits, and there's different themes. And I went into one room because I heard there were some really old, unique rums in there. And when I went in, the – the um, the rep for the brand started off by saying, well, we also want to showcase some of our whiskeys. And he started talking and I said, oh, you know, I'm actually, I'm interested, you know, in the rums. And he's like, oh no, but these whiskeys. And I let him talk for a minute or two. And then I said, I, I have to tell you, I've got a long day and I'm really not interested in trying any of the whiskeys. I'm only <laughs> interested in the rum. And he looked a little dejected at first, but then his eyes kind of opened and I said, you know, I, I make rum. That's what, that's what I care right. about. And it, it opened a different conversation because it's not usually that way. So I love seeing the shift in people appreciating rum. And so on that flip side, there's always the people who love rum. And usually their experience is their honeymoon, a wedding in the Caribbean, somewhere they went on vacation, had a blast, and rum was at the core of that celebration. Oh, and I had a blast. Yeah, yeah. And so I love those stories too. So um, Then the next part of it, we signed up for this. It's they made the like the flyers for it made it sound so wholesome. It was called the Outback Safari, mm -hmm. and it's pitched that you get to see like what the Dominican Republic's really like. Yeah, yeah. They took us to a coffee farm, um, a tobacco farm, mm -hmm. um, and like to a typical house in the Dominican Republic, and then they had a private beach that they take you to. 
I don't know if I've ever been so drunk in my life. Because they also give you rum the entire time. <laughs> yeah. So it starts out and I don't know if maybe like in the Dominican Republic, it's not common to have a driver's license because anytime we were on any sort of public transportation, they made a joke about us being lucky that the driver has a driver's license. So this was like on an old military transport truck mm-hmm. and there was 20 to 30 people on the back of it. There was the driver and then a tour guide who was standing on the bumper with on one arm wrapped around like one of the canopy supports. And he makes the typical joke of what that he has a driver's license and he yells, hold your driver's license up. And he holds up a huge bottle of rum, passes it back to him. And he had a cooler full of bottles of Sprite and Coke. He would pour three quarters of the bottle out and then fill it back up with rum. I don't even know how many bottles my friends and I went through, but when we went, by the time we got to the beach where like there were other parts of the tour that were there too, we went around with the tour guide whose idea it was and took a bunch of their bottles of rum back to our truck because we had drank all of ours. (laughs) And so that was fun. So and this this is a perfect illustration yeah. that rum is always part of a good time. Yeah, it, Sometimes it was, too much of a good time. Yeah, and, <laughs> and it was it was a great time. The rest of that day was rough, yeah. <laughs> but and I, I I also learned a lot on that trip. <laughs> I know that how coffee's made. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> love it, love it. So one one thing I was wondering, so like Bacardi has um, flavored rums and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like. Do they use real fruit or is it all like extracts and flavorings or do you just have You know, no I, I really try not to speak to what people do because I don't work at Bacardi. Yeah. So I, I don't know. But I will say that in general, in, in any, you know, large industry, as you scale up, um, it is, is very common to use extracts and flavorings yeah, for so consistency, for the look. You know, we talk a lot about, um, you know, whiskey that might have sediment. I know you're definitely familiar with beer that's hazy yeah. right um and so there's things you can do to prevent that um something that we're known for at lion distilling and i always kind of prickle when someone asks me about my flavored rums because that sounds so gross to say a flavored it rum kind of um yeah. and so we really talk about our rums as being infused because we start we distill everything from scratch uh, we use 100 percent louisiana cane sugar because our mission is to make a really remarkable american rum and so for me that means it needs to be American sugarcane. So all of our sugarcane comes from Louisiana. Um, we double distill that in little pot stills. And then we take that raw white distillate, which is delightful on its own. Um, and if we're not bottling it as our white rum, we're infusing whole ingredients into our quote unquote flavored rums. Um, so like, for example, our summer rum right now is our, our toasted coconut rum. And people come in and they're like, this is so good. Why is this so amazing? Why does it have this, you know, color to it? And we say, well, we take our white rum and we hand toast coconut and then we infuse that into the rum and we let it set. And then oh, we you strain toast it, it out. yourself? Uh, my sister. So okay. my sister, Jessie, is uh, my number one rum runner. She runs all of her wholesale. She works in the tasting room. She does a bunch of marketing, but she is, the coconut rum is her, is her baby. So. Do you know that you can buy it toasted? You know, you, you can you can also buy rum yeah. by the jug. <laughs> it's just one of one of no, my favorite stories told was um, Full Tilt Brewing did yeah. it, does a coconut. I think it's a porter porter or stout, and they talked about like how miserable it was when they they were making their first batch of yeah. it. But I'm guessing 
probably to do that much beer, you have to toast so much more oh, yeah. than what you're toasting. Oh, no. This, so like, it's they a were lot. just talking about the miserableness of it. And then afterwards, he found out you can just buy toasted yeah, yeah, coconut. Yeah. <laughs> well, that also, and like, I don't want to disparage anybody's experience, but yeah. we love the work. So Coconut Day is a really fun day at the distillery. And um, Jesse and Brett, who's our lead distiller, they get up at four in the morning and they go to the restaurant next door that lets us use their fancy oven and they toast okay. coconut. They play music and they dance and they toast coconut for hours. They did it in their kitchen. Maybe yeah. that's what happened maybe, to, maybe. in their home kitchen. Right. Yeah. No. So, But I mean, it's a long day and by the end and then they bring it back to the distillery and they're infusing it and the whole place smells like a tropical oasis. Um, but that's the work. Right. Yeah. And so they have fun with it. And, you know, she signs every label. That's her bottle. So it, they all say cheers from Jesse and, uh, and so, yeah, so we've talked, someone actually recommended, actually a brewer friend said, oh, I've got some toasted coconut that we buy. You should try it. And we, we did. We did a small batch. And it was, it was just okay. And you know what? There's a lot of out there, things that are just okay. Yeah. Like our coconut rum is stellar. It's the best thing you'll ever put in your mouth that tastes like coconut. <laughs> and there's a reason why it's only 200 bottles a batch and it's only in the summer and you can't get it outside of the distillery. And the only reason I brought a mini today is because we don't have any at the moment. Um, so it, it's harder. It's absolutely yeah. harder. It's more laborious. Um, it's it's an intense process. It's hard to source fresh things. You know, um, We have a pineapple rum right now that I'm using dehydrated pineapples in. And you can get dehydrated pineapples, but I slice them and I dehydrate them for four weeks, all day, every day, before we infuse them into oh, the wow. rum. And it makes a hell of a difference. And I know it makes a taste difference, but I also believe that the intention with which you do something, that that carries through. You know, I don't want to get too hippy dippy, you know, <laughs> out, you know, level with you. But I think that when you make a product with love and with intent, that one, you owe it to that. I'm making something that you're going to put in your mouth and in your body. And there is no higher level of trust in the world than that. Um, and so we believe with making it with good intentions. And I kind of credit a friend of mine, um, I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, Francesco, who owns Don Ciccio Ifigli no. in D.C. He, he's an Amaro distiller. And uh, he basically um, makes the most lovely Amaros with his grandfather's recipe from the Amalfi Coast. And he's in D.C. And he once told me that, you know, you never make a batch when you're angry because you can taste it. And I just thought that is that's exactly how I feel. That's how I've always known I felt, but he put it in words. And so uh, you got to do it with love. I, I feel like I can believe that, but maybe not from like the spiritual, like, uh, the, well, from the an way, energy, yeah, yeah the way it energy. was said, but more yeah. of just like, you know, if you're happy, you're going to do better work. You're going to care more oh, yeah. about what you're doing. 100%. Like, the, the physical actions of what you're doing are going to be different. Also, if someone's cooking you dinner and they're angry at you, and they throw that plate on the table. Yeah. I don't care how good it's cooked. Yeah. You you know that it's a little bitter on the side, you know, <laughs> as opposed to I baked you this cake because I love you so much. It's going to taste better. <laughs> so like th that was one of the one of the things that just popped in my head that could, it would be a, a very big differentiator between humongous uh, distilleries and craft distilleries yeah. is that because you're making so much less, you have the luxury, maybe not even the luxury, but you are able to use actual fresh products instead of having to use extracts or deciding to use extracts because you can't keep the consistency on humongous scale. Exactly. So. No, and that's true, right? There's there's something about craft distilling. And so I think where craft distillers do come in and say, you know, our spirits are more interesting or are quote unquote better than a big one, a big producer, 
is that there's real attention to detail and that there's nuances between batches. And if you want your spirit to taste exactly the same for your entire lifetime, that you buy that bottle and it be exactly the same, then you should stick with a big brand maybe, right? Because you might find nuances from batch to batch. You know, there's a reason we put each batch number on our rums because they're very consistent after six years of doing this. However, we do everything by hand, you know? So if the coffee that was roasted by Rise Up is roasted a couple minutes longer one day and has more toasty character, that batch is going to carry through. And so we embrace that. Um, Most people wouldn't tell the difference, but we can. You know, we get a batch of oranges in, and they're just a little sweeter. And so that batch of rock and rum has a little more sweetness to it. Yeah, I could see how, like, oranges are definitely something that would be a huge difference in the flavor. Especially because we're in Maryland, right? So we're not growing the oranges out back. We're not able to always pick them at peak ripeness. Yeah, but that's Um, just definitely one of those fruits that have a huge range in flavor depending on probably where they're grown, what time of exactly. Year so, the so you, if you're going to hone in on that and 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 small batch and by hand, you know, there's there's different things. So it is different when you're small. Um, there's good and there's bad. It just depends on what you're looking for. Okay. Right, we're going to take a real quick break okay. to thank our sponsors, and then we we'll get back. Actually, I want to talk about that um, uh, Louisiana. A yeah, bit. yeah, my favorite. A huge thank you to our presenting sponsor, Roast House Pub, which is located at 5700 Urbana Pike in Frederick, Maryland. If you have listened to this podcast before, you have definitely heard me go on and on about the beer dinners that Chef Nico creates. Simply put, they are amazing. But Roast House Pub has much more to offer. Their friendly staff is knowledgeable about beer and will help you choose from among the 20 beers they have on tap. In addition to the awesome beer selection, the food is always amazing. Make sure to follow them on Facebook and check their website at www.roasthousepub.com to keep up to date on their constant stream of events. All right, so now that I know how amazing the coconut rum is. I told you so. <laughs> let's talk a little bit more about how amazing it is. Um, I don't I don't actually I don't know if I've ever had coconut rum before. So okay. well, I will take I I will take your word for it that's the 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 um painstaking that it makes a difference difference. but this is ridiculously good it is it really is um and the credit goes 100 percent to to my sister jesse and to our distiller brett um for finding out how to make it delicious right doing it all natural and i don't want to say anything disparaging about coconut rum on the market except to say that we did we weren't buying or drinking any coconut rum before we made coconut rum because it wasn't satisfying what we were looking for and what i love about this rum is that it's inherently rummy you get that grassy bright note of our white rum but then you get rich baking toasted coconut i mean after you sip it you feel like you just had a small piece of coconut cake it's heavenly 100 Mm percent and we are famous for kind of not doing any puffery on our labels we don't really tell a long story it is it is rum. It's delicious. If you buy it, you'll probably agree with us. So when it came to writing the back label for the coconut rum, uh, my sister you know, thought long and hard about what she wanted to say about the rum. And in the end, um, the tagline that's printed on the back says, smells like summer and tastes like cake. The end, you know, <laughs> enjoy. enjoy. Um, and so we do. We love it. We love it on its own. It's great with um, just a little squeeze of fresh lime, shake it up, strain it out as a daiquiri. Um, or it can go into any drink that you're used to having your coconut rum in. But um, the color is the number one thing that people notice. And I don't know if you can see it on the screen, but it's not clear. Um, much like we have a curacao 
that is it's not a hazy blue. Rum. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a hazy rum. But it's it that's toasted coconut. It's the color of of that ingredient. So yeah, it makes it. Just start calling it that. You may sell twice as much. I can't sell twice as much. <laughs> I, because I can't make twice as much. <laughs> we'll okay, sell it twice as fast. Exactly. Then. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but then it's stressful, right? Yeah. So we have another batch coming out. They're actually bottling it today at the distillery as we speak. So we'll have batch number eight hitting the shelves this weekend. It leaves an amazing aftertaste on your lips too. And that's like the most important around. thing, right? I can't stress enough, you know, every spirit is different and everyone's experience with the spirit is different. But I have two things that I that I caution people to, to keep in mind, no matter if you've ever had a spirit before or you're the biggest connoisseur. But one, when you smell something, the nose, what you smell, if it's pleasant, if it's not pleasant, just be done. Don't don't put it to your mouth. But if you, if you smell and it smells pleasant, hopefully the the taste delivers, you know, the, the, the smell is giving your, your body a promise. And, uh, and if it delivers, then there's a synergy between the smell and the taste, then they've done a good job, in my opinion, that's the first good job. Now there's many layers above that. But also, especially with rum, and especially when you're drinking it straight, um, it should have a pleasant aftertaste. If it smells good and tastes good, but then you're left with bitterness, that's one of the number one indicators that some extract or flavoring has been added. It's kind of like eating real sugar versus aspartame or all these other sugar substitutes, yeah. there's always a little bit of a bitter aftertaste. And while certain spirits are meant to be bitter, like Amaro's and, and, and certain vermouths and things, um, if you get a bitterness off of a dark rum or off of any rum or any spirit, then something's off. You know, you kind of question, what, what went in here? Um, yeah, and, it, and you can always tell because typically it, um, like say, you used a cherry flavoring. Yes. It would taste like a cherry, or like it, it would taste like cherry, not a cherry. Exactly. There's, the, there's exactly. always that. Like there's the banana, like uh, banana laffy taffy. It tastes tastes like banana, but not a banana. Not a real banana. <laughs> yeah. Like no banana I've ever peeled. Yeah. Um, and I will say that is a big. Um, a big challenge for us. So the rock and rum, I like don't know what's on TV and what's not. But the rock and rum, if you look at the label. Um, if it's close to your face, it's, it's guaranteed face. to be I, on. I love the rock and <laughs> um, When you look at these labels, like our new liqueur labels, they actually showed the fruit that's in there. So I love our rock and rum because it shows the cherries. But all too often, people come up and they say, oh, I'll have the cherry rum. Or, and that's pleasant to them, and I have to warn them, it's not cherry rum. It has cherries or one of the components of it. But it also has orange peels and bitters and smoky caramel. Um, but a lot of times people see the cherry and they're like, oh, I hate cherry flavored things. And that's when it comes back to the education. Yeah. It's not cherry flavored. These are yeah, this isn't the cherry Italian Coke. cherries. Yeah, these are <laughs> these are rich, tart cherries. Um, and so it's it's interesting what our, our conception is. Because when you see a cherry in the world, you have an idea of what it's going to taste like. But when you see cherry flavored something, you know there's a disconnect. So I really try hard, um, both myself and my entire team, to educate people that these are real whole ingredients. And they're going to taste way different and way better than any flavored spirit you've ever had. So the um the the festival you were at in Louisiana mm -hmm. is it was that an industry thing or yeah, is that yeah. okay so But it's anybody for can all. go. Anyone oh, okay. can go. Yeah, so it's um gosh, what is it? Is it the 11th or 12th year? Um it's over 10 years now. Uh Tales of the Cocktail and it's a massive um convention conference whatever you want to call it. Um it's like imagine any con any industry that a listener is in. Imagine what your conferences are like, your annual conferences. Now imagine that every vendor is a spirits maker, a bartender, <laughs> a uh, booze writer, um, and that all the breakout sessions are tasting rooms and panels of educating. So you might start your day with a 9 a.m. Um, I went to a, a class that was all about 
terroir in cane. So we were sipping, you know, Haitian um, agricole spirits and, you know, um, uh, what do we have? We had a, oh, a Mexican, a Oaxacan rum. So all these different spirits. So you're drinking straight spirits, you know, in the morning. And then you're going to a party that's maybe thrown by another brand in the afternoon and they're showcasing something new. And so there's a lot of education, a lot of promotion, and a lot of alcohol. And it celebrates the cocktail. So at the heart of the cocktail is obviously the spirits themselves. And so you have a lot of producers there. And we started going six years ago. So this was our sixth year attending. And the conference has changed a lot, but it's wonderful because you meet um, yeah, all the writers and, and, and people in the industry, uh, the historians, the guardians kind of of, of, our, of our spirit history. Uh, purveyors, bartenders, and enthusiasts. Some people are just there because they either live in the city and they want to come or because they like coming to New Orleans and, and getting to see these things firsthand. There's new releases. Um, and yeah, it's really fun. I feel like it, I have a new goal to try to convince um, the newspaper that 100%. I, I need, that's a conference that I need to go to. Well, and it's, it's real because <laughs> a lot of, um, I know a lot of podcasters and, and media that are down there. And so media can get specific passes. And so they can go into all these rooms and you have everything in one area, right? Okay. So here you have to, people have to come to you, right? And you're in this one little n- niche spot in Maryland, but you go to Tales for three days and you could set up a little remote studio and do 10 podcasts a day. And then you could go report live from somewhere. And can so, I swing you by our uh, publisher's yeah, I'm office a, I'm a before? Gr- I'm a great pitcher, <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, it's wonderful. And so where else in the world can you get all these people together? And so it's really wonderful and you get to see people from all over and it's a, it's a global community. So you've got bar owners and producers from as far flung as you know Australia, from you know South Africa, from California. <laughs> like it's everyone. Um, I, I get to go to, uh, don't get too jealous, a conference for software that's used to design um, paper delivery routes next next month. I could do a rum tasting at the conference. <laughs> well, they are, they, they are drinkers, so <laughs> they would probably enjoy I that could very imagine. much. There's a good synergy there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my only hesitation, though, is I've, I've been to Louisiana once, mm-hmm. and it, it was in Lafayette was where yeah. I mainly was. I went there for a job interview, and it was in... It was in the end of October, I think. Mm-hmm. And I got off the plane and I instantly knew I wasn't going to take the job because it was all it was still, I don't know, roughly 130 degrees with a thousand percent humidity. Oh yeah. So I don't know if I could physically survive in Louisiana during the summer. That's the thing. And it's you know, it does <laughs> Louisiana does have seasons in the different areas and New Orleans is very hot in the summer, which is one reason I think that um bringing uh, booze people uh, down in the middle of July. We're like, yeah, sure, why not? Um, We can handle the heat. Uh, (laughs) And it was funny because obviously we had a heat wave in Maryland last week. And when I came home on Friday night, everyone said, you know, oh my gosh, you're not gonna be able to handle it. It's so hot. Welcome to the oven. I got off the plane in Baltimore and it was a good 15 degrees cooler than it was in Louisiana. I was like, this feels great. So it is, it is, it is hot in New Orleans in the summertime. Um, But you know, it's a good reason to cool off with a daiquiri. That's true. It was just, you have to stay... Um, uh, hydrated yes. enough to and find the bars care. with the air conditioning. Yeah. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so the you started out focusing on rum. Yeah, you dabbled in whiskey for a little while, mm-hmm. and it, it was popular. Um, why have you turned your back on? <laughs> it's so dramatic, right? <laughs> so, um, as I mentioned, we started with the intention of making rum. We knew other things would come along, and. Uh, Maryland, as most people know, um, is is known historically for rye production, for rye whiskey. And so when we opened, nobody had distilled or sold 
rye made in Maryland in, you know, just over 40 years. Pikesville uh, closed their doors, laid down their last batch. I think 1972, they distilled their last batch, released those barrels a few years later, and then the label has been made in Kentucky ever since. So we we are tiny, and so we knew we were never, you know, we didn't set with a mission to like bring back Maryland rye, <laughs> but we felt that it was important that we nod our hats to this, you know, traditional, culturally significant spirit. Um, and so kind of like with the rum, we took a very different approach. Um, we didn't try to recreate any old historic brand or anything like that. We said, all right, what are the parameters for rye? Uh, what was Maryland Rye known for? And it was known for being the best. So that's a pretty vague, you yeah. know, standard <laughs> to reach. And so um, we used a mash bill that we thought was interesting um, that was very low in, in, in rye content. It's 55% rye, 35% corn, and 10% malted barley. Uh, double distilled in our little tiny pot stills and then aged for just about two years. Um, some of the barrels were a little over two years. Some of them are a little under two years. Um and, and, and set on it. And we released tiny batches um, every year, uh, usually about 100 bottles a batch. Uh, this is our final batch. This is batch number six. Um, it was released this past December. It's almost gone. It's only available at the tasting room and a couple of bars have it, some of our favorite spots and a couple of liquor stores. But if you want to try it, you, you got it. You know, I feel like I have to now. Yeah, I'm yeah. It's, it, it's wonderful. Although I think I had it at the Spirits Festival. Yeah, I think I brought um, it to, to Frederick. Um, we try I to still, bring it for special things. Um, I can pour it because it's a little easier yeah. for me to move the mic in and out. No worries. Um, we were very lucky that people loved it. Um, but again, we were making it... Um, not for everyone, right? We were only making a few hundred bottles, and this last batch was just shy of a thousand bottles, and which was huge for us. But we've had a lot of really great people amazing. talk about it. Yeah, Esquire said it was the best whiskey in Maryland. Um, it's had a number of wonderful reviews, which I was always like, Shh, "Stop talking about it. There's not enough for everybody." <laughs> uh, talk about you know something else. Uh, do you do you enter the um, distilling competitions? You know, I'm not a big competition person. Um, I think that goes back to being an artist. Um, yeah. There's there's actually a composer who has a quote that I think about often whenever everybody asks me why I'm not entering more competitions. And basically he said that uh, competitions are for horses, not artists. This is really good. Isn't that right good? And it, but it's very different. Yeah, it's very different. It, it's great. Bright, don't... dark cherry notes, real rich, full, a little bit of spice, but not too much. Um, not a lot of vanilla because it's not aged, quote unquote, for a very long time, so that it doesn't develop. The smaller barrels are a little bit different in flavor. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've just, had a yeah. decent amount of um, Baltimore Spirit Company's mm -hmm. Epic Rye. Yeah, I love that. And then um, McClintock's Bootjack Rye. Yeah. Both of those taste completely different. Mm -hmm. And then I mean, I don't know why I'm surprised. It's not like. Every beer <laughs> has any scent, even dorm well, styles taste the same. So it makes sense that you're not wrong because for many decades, rye was just rye. Made it all the same. Right? And rye okay. tasted, it was pretty standard, right? It's a certain flavor profile, and you either like it or you don't. But the great thing about all of these small distilleries opening up is you might like one person's rye and not another. So you can no longer judge the category based on one bottle. And that is the best thing about craft distilling. And so it makes sense that our whiskey doesn't taste like any other whiskey you've had before. And I mean, the, our rye is very different. It's, I mean, to me, it's just, it tastes, it's so ready for a Manhattan. It's got all that bright, dark fruit notes and um, 
It's 98 proof, but you would never think it's yeah, that it strong. Would, I just noticed that, and I, mm-hmm. you're right. I wouldn't have thought, like, wow, this is really strong. <laughs> and so we had a lot of fun making it, and I often say that there's many reasons why we stopped. Um, my biggest factor was that we we're small and we needed to make more rum. Uh, when we started, we were just selling out of our tasting room, so whatever we made was available for sale, and now we're in five states and, and growing. Um, I have a growing team. You know, We started as a team of two. We're now a team of 15. Um, and so every day we're making rum. And so that was one big reason was we just have so much space. Our stills are just one size. And to pivot and to do grain sometimes and, you know, sugar the other, it was just a little disconnect. Plus I now have, uh, I have three distillers on our team and they've all been with us for a couple of years now. Um, Brett, our lead distiller has been with us for three years and he mashed the very last batch um, and then has been focused on rum for three years. So again, it kind of goes back to focusing and honing in on your skills. And it's it's great to, to diversify. But if you want to be an expert, I believe that you have to spend all of your time focusing on making that thing perfect. And so we're not just make. I mean, we only make rum, but we're not just quote unquote making rum. We're making all of these wonderful spirits from cane and molasses, right? We're making all these different infusions and different finishes, and we're having a lot of fun with rum. I mean, we have 12 SKUs for rum, so it's not just rum. I mean, there's a there's a lot going on right now at the distillery. If, um, if I remember correctly, you make your own molasses too, right? From No, we make our own. Or so, you make your own caramel. Yeah, right? which is also a thing that was a little different. Um, I think a couple of distillers have picked up on that, but um, most often rum and other spirits are just cut and sweetened with stock caramel, caramel coloring and flavoring. Um, and that was something that just did not speak to us. It didn't make sense. Why are we going to take such care in distilling a spirit from scratch just to add something someone else made? So we, we cook our, our caramel by hand, which is another reason why the rock and rum and the dark rum taste so good and they don't taste too sweet. Uh, there's a smoky, rich note to them. Um, and so, yeah, we're always just trying to do something a little bit different. Again, looking to what's been done in the past, but making it our own. Um, yeah. Do you, do you play around with um, other types of the base sugar? Do you always use Maryland cane sugar? Um, so there is no sugar grown in Maryland. Um, or what yeah. did you describe? Uh, Louisiana. Louisiana. Yeah, a lot, a lot of people. Yeah. A lot of people think that you can get local sugar because Domino processes sugar yeah. in Maryland, but that's it's about where it's grown, right? So okay. there's no, there's no cane grown um, this far north. Um, even the cane that's grown in Louisiana is an immature crop. Um, it doesn't change the flavor, but it changes the sugar content because they have to harvest starting in October because even though Louisiana is as hot as we talked about, um, our sugar fields that we work with are just outside of Baton Rouge, and it will get cold, and the ground will freeze in December. Okay. Um, last year, they actually got a snowstorm right around Thanksgiving, and they were working overtime to process all the cane before it freezes. Um, so all of our sugar cane is grown in Louisiana, and we use both the raw first-pressed sugar and molasses, which is the byproduct of making that crystal sugar. And so that gives our spirit a really unique edge where we're kind of combining these two global styles where it's somewhat an agricultural style rum because you get a little bit of that cane juice terroir, uh, but you also get those rich, full, smoky molasses notes. And then we take that sugar and, and cook it um, into a caramel. Yeah. So you always use the the, the Louisiana cane you have. It. Yep. You don't no, at this point, yeah, no, you know, we tried with, of course, in the beginning, you're experimenting. Yeah. Um, but once you hone in on something good um, and it works, you know, it's like, okay, that's our base. And now we can experiment with different products, you know, but I'm not, I'm not a huge experimenter, to be honest. If we try something, 
I kind of work it out in my mind first. We give it a go. We might do one or two iterations, and then we're locked in. Um, when we started, we didn't have the luxury of buying sugar like we buy now. You know, I told you we were making uh, 30 bottles a week. We were buying sometimes five-gallon buckets of molasses, 50-gallon <laughs> totes, which seemed huge. Um, but a couple of years ago when we started working with um, – You could have just gone to Costco. Oh, <laughs> you, you absolutely could. And we would go to like Sam's Club and pick up <laughs> some sugar. But, you know, it's been about three or four years now that we've worked with our sugar mill in Louisiana. And we get um, now uh, four times a year, and this year it might be five times a year, uh, our entirely own tractor-trailer – with 50,000 oh, wow. pounds of sugar and that molasses. That's a lot of sugar. <laughs> it's a lot of sugar rolling into our tiny town. That tractor trailer pulls up and we unload 20 pallets of sugar and molasses. And that is just unbelievable to me. So people always want to ask me questions like, um, you know, how many bottles are you producing? How many cases are you producing? You know, what are your projections? And I don't want to talk about any of that stuff because I don't care. Um, I care about the creative process. But when I want to, people want to know how we've grown in six years, I say, well, picture a five-gallon bucket of molasses and then picture 50,000 pounds of sugar cane being <laughs> delivered from the fields. Like, that is that is growth to me. That is exciting. So the – if I remember correctly, you use multiple s- small stills, right? Mm-hmm. It, what What's the philosophy behind that instead of – is it just like – for capacity, you added new ones yeah, you know, or instead of going the, to... Right? There's there's these beautiful constraints. And, and Lion Distilling is an absolute case study in beautiful constraints. Um, when we started, we were infinitely small. Um, I only know a handful of distilleries that started smaller than we did. We could only afford to buy the tiniest stills out there. Mm. We drove to Barlow, Kentucky on a road trip to visit the still manufacturer and put down the $1,500 on the still, um, <laughs> and we could afford two of them. Uh, and they're 26 gallons, and they're electric fired, and they have very short little um, columns, so they're little pot stills. Uh, and we actually modified those uh, to be even shorter. So you have this very, very short column for the the booze going out, so you have this you know really, really flavorful raw spirit. And we really liked those, and we worked with two stills only. So we had a 50-gallon capacity. Um, for the first year and then we quickly added a third still and then we added two more so then we would have you know 125 gallon capacity um and that was great and we worked like that for the first couple of years uh running everything through those stills twice but you know we were really limited it took a long time to to do what we were doing and so then three years ago now almost we upgraded and we added um a 500 gallon stripping still so now we process all of the rum wash through the stripping still first, and then feed those low wines into the spirit stills. Okay. So that we're still... You do the heavy lifting heavy in lifting, the large exactly. one and then the refinement. And, and that was a challenge. The- I remember having serious concerns when we were doing the first runs because it tasted a little different. And I didn't know what that would mean because I loved our rum and I didn't want to change anything. And when you scale up, there are there are changes. And there's benefits and there's sacrifices. And so we worked really hard to make sure that our recipe was still translating through in the bigger still. And then we found very quickly that that first step wasn't as integral as the final step. So as long as we use the little stills as the finishing stills, the flavor profile was was right on. Okay. Um, we could make a lot rum, a lot a lot more rum, a lot faster if we use the big still for both. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're not willing to, I'm not willing to compromise. Uh, just to make more rum faster. That's not what that's not what I'm here for. Have you tried 
to and not been able to replicate the taste that way? It's or just a little more, um, it's good, but it's just, just good. It's not lion rum. It, it is. It's just not as remarkable. Again, okay. it's, and it's these little things. Would most people tell the difference? No. But it's that little extra bit where you really take care. It's the difference between everything. It's the difference between making pasta at home and store-bought dried pasta. Your pasta dish is still delicious, but you just know when yeah. somebody made that pasta from hand. And I, I think those little touches really matter. And when you're small and when you build your reputation and your, your philosophy on it, as opposed to building your business on numbers and bottom line, you just get a little bit of a different product. So, um, you know, I am the CEO of my little growing company. Um, if I had a board, which I don't, they might <laughs> advise me to do things yeah. that were a little more lucrative or a little more cost efficient. But I don't cut corners. I've never cut corners in my life, and I refuse to do it at Lion Distilling. And so I think what that's done is it's kind of made us dig our heels in, and maybe I'm a little stubborn sometimes, um, like not buying pre-toasted coconut because who's going to tell the difference? And we can make five times more and yeah. so much more money, and everyone will be happy. Um, it's just not my it's not my mo, you know. But that, that's something that has destroyed um, brands before by having either having to um, or just deciding that they mm -hmm. they want to focus more on cost savings instead of just the quality of the product. Absolutely. And then starting to cut corners, maybe not cut corners, or do things. Efficiency. In, yeah. Right? yeah they, they, we'll use the. Oh, efficiency. <laughs> yeah, and efficiency. Try to great. inject efficiencies in that change things just enough that you kind of, you, you lose yourself exactly. in what you'd built, mm -hmm. and then it slowly starts to take a dive. Exactly. I just wouldn't do anything that would compromise the quality. So if there's things that can help us work smarter and not harder, you know, like the big still, like, you know, the bigger mash ton that helps us, you know, heat up water and get the rum fermentations going quicker, all of those things were sensible decisions. You know, we don't have to stand over an open propane mash ton <laughs> sweating it out, you know, um, anymore. But that didn't change the quality of the spirit but there are some things that would that would change the quality um and yeah we're just not we're not willing to do that but everybody has a different goal and like yeah. i said ours was there was there still is no business plan nor projections much to my <laughs> accountant's chagrin um at lion that the goal is make the best spirits possible as fast as possible as efficiently as quality and sell them and have fun and mostly have fun as long as the customers are happy mm -hmm. and the person in charge is happy, who cares? As long as the employees are happy. <laughs> yeah, as long as my team is thrilled. You know, I, I always heard, um, because I'm a customer service person. So another thing you'll often hear me say is that, yes, we make these phenomenal spirits. And they do, back to the awards, they do win awards. We've we've entered them in a few competitions, only really the industry ones, the, the mm -hmm. peer competitions, like um, the American Craft Spirits Association, the American Distilling Institute, because... When you enter spirits, um, it costs money. So if you want a lot of gold medals, that, you have to spend a lot of money. Yeah, that to was get actually those. where, like, yeah. my point of bringing it up because I just recently learned yeah. the economics yeah. of those competitions and how much, like, it's so bogus, man. If, if you <laughs> like, because you, when you're small and you only make a hundred bottles of whiskey and you know it's the best whiskey in the world, you have to send two or three bottles of that cherished whiskey. So now you only have ninety-seven bottles, and you got to send them a couple hundred bucks. Yeah, and it might break in the mail and then you got to do it again. Um, but it is wonderful to get feedback from people that you respect. Yeah. So in the early days when we sent our rum in to these competitions, it wasn't to hang a medal around our necks. Um, it was to hear like what our fellow distillers that might not have tried it, some 
brutal, real feedback, yeah. you know, and to hear good things was was wonderful. We already knew it was good. I say every day that if I sell bottles of rum, then that's my award. You know, like you don't sell something that isn't delightful, especially in our tasting room where you taste it, complimentary tastings. And if you like it, you go home with a bottle. And to me, that is winning. Yeah. Um, that means someone's happy. Um, a million gold medals doesn't necessarily sell bottles and it doesn't mean someone's going to like it. But I think that the industry competitions are valuable for that reason. Um, so we usually enter like one or two spirits a year. Um, it, it is prohibitively expensive for us. We're very small. We don't actually spend any money on marketing. Um, we just talk about our products a lot and, and, yeah. and give away a lot of free rum at events. And uh, and we consider that our marketing. So, so no, but almost every one of our spirits has one or two medals over the years. But once they get one, they're retired. You know, if I enter the dark rum and it gets a gold medal, well, why would I keep doing it? But that's that's my personal decision. I don't begrudge anyone in the industry that wants to hang 40 medals around, you know, a, a bottle of spirits. Um, but yeah, it's just not what's important to me. Yeah, I, I was just shocked. That, like, yeah, just when I went it. down the list of, like, and, it, and it's not even just the one time. Like, it's all the nickel and diming of, yeah. be, like, being able to use the logo in advertising. and Well, and, and you know, if you're a global spirits brand, it does. It's, it's almost like the, you know, wine, like, wine points. You almost you know? have to do yeah, it. Yeah, it, helps, you, it helps differentiate who you are. But again... We have the luxury of being small. Yeah. Um, I hand sell our spirits in all our markets. So being in Louisiana last week, I wasn't just down there for tales to have a great time. Um, but we presented our rum at, at one of the seminars, and we have distribution in Louisiana. So I spent half of the week visiting my accounts, pouring rum for bartenders and you know store owners. And so that's how I market it. I'd rather go down there and talk about um, the distillery and the team than just let you know a medal lead the way. Have you found it um, easier to sell out of market to stores? Um, you know, it's, it, it's just different. Um, and every market is different. Every market is unique. Um, I think that we were in a really unique position uh, when we opened in Maryland because, again, we were the only ones making rum. And so people in Maryland just wanted it. The stores yeah. all had to have it. We were the first and the only rum in Maryland. So it sold itself. Um, whereas when you go to Connecticut to sell rum, everyone's like, what's St. Michael's? Who, who's Maryland? We don't care about that. So there was this um, enthusiasm around us being a local homegrown okay. product in Maryland. Um, now, of course, it's different because there's almost 30 distilleries in Maryland. So there's still a lot of pride and people get excited. But you might go to a Howard County liquor store and they don't have room because they're supporting their Howard County distillery. Or, you know, so it gets even more sectioned yeah. down. So we're all Maryland spirits, but we have our little areas. Um, There's a little um, little store in our, my neighborhood. And if you walk in, they just, they have a whole end cap of just Maryland spirits. Which is awesome. So. That is my favorite thing. And a lot of stores in Maryland do that. that we have it's actually the first end cap you walk past. As soon Which as you store? walk through Lakefront. Okay. Um, I can't remember the rest of the yeah, name there, of there's it. Yeah, there's but. a handful. I would say there's like five or six stores. And when a new distillery opens and they call me and they say, Who's friendly? Like, who who should we go to first? Because it's kind of scary to go into a liquor yeah. store for the first time and try to sell your product that you're super excited about. And they just look at you like, wait, who are you? Why I do know I that, care? I know they've carried, they have your stuff sometimes. I'm yeah. pretty sure it's there. But I know the other, one of the other bigger ones in Frederick Eel's spirit mm -hmm. shop, they, their Maryland stuff is rates by the register. Yeah. And I think you guys are usually on the top shelf along there because that, that's where I get my rock and roll. Awesome. I love it. <laughs> yeah, so when a store does that, it's wonderful. So you're never going to see a Maryland section 
in Louisiana. Yeah. Right. Um, so it's different to sell. So it's a different story. It's a different pitch. But lucky for me, I've never relied on the fact that we're Maryland rum or that we're Maryland's first or Maryland's only. We just that's just something we happen to be. It's all about delicious rum. So um, I could tell people whatever story they want to hear, but at the end of the day. I'd really just prefer to pour it for you. And once you love it, that's delicious. Now I'll tell you about it. And so, um, but in Louisiana, it's particularly special because it is a Louisiana agricultural product. Okay. So when I'm in Louisiana, especially when I'm in Baton Rouge. Talk about I, that a lot. <laughs> and I and I mentioned the mill where our sugar's processed. One in three people worked there, has a family member that works at the mill, and their eyes light up. And so that's that's very cool. Yeah, I would... I would venture to guess the rest of the country could care less if rum was made in Maryland or not. <laughs> yeah, but you know what's interesting? One thing I talk about more than Maryland, and I'm born and raised in Maryland. This is this is my home state. I just happen to live outside of the country for a long time. Um, is that it's an American rum, and that turns people's heads because they're like, "Wait, what?" Because we don't often talk about American rum as a category, and it's definitely an emerging category. Um, and there are some really notable American rums, and we've been very lucky to be included in these top 10 American rum distilleries. And one reason was because there's not that many of them. <laughs> um, but American rum starting to define what it is um, or what it's not is interesting. And for American rum to kind of compete, or not compete, but to at least sit at the table with global rums, because we all think about think about good rum. And most people are going to put the words delicious, old Caribbean rum. They're not going to say young delicious American rum. And so that's been our mission at Lion Distilling is to make like our white rum, which is unaged. It's phenomenal. It's a beautiful spirit. And everything else we make from that white rum in turn is even more interesting and, and, and delightful. Um, so American rum is something that I think people care about. And when they find out, well, it makes an American. Oh, it's made in Maryland. Okay. Well, where's Maryland again? Oh, and the sugar, where, the sugar must come from the Caribbean. No, it comes from Louisiana. Oh, that seems very appropriate. And so Connecticut um, doesn't have a lot of rum in their market. Uh, it's a small state, and most of the rum, when I go into a store, my immediate pitch is, I see you have no American rums on your shelf. And they look at me like, what the hell's an American rum? <laughs> and then I say, I make rum in Maryland, and I use Louisiana sugarcane, and it's as delicious as that Diplomatico. Do you want to try it? And what's cool about that is I'm not saying, kick out your Diplomatico. What I'm saying is there's room on your shelf for both. Because yeah, Diplomatico is a lovely a rum, addition. and this, my rum, is also a lovely rum, and here you go. Now, when I walk in and there's another American rum, then my pitch is a little different. It's, I see you have Privateer. That's a beautiful American rum. We make a very different style of American rum down in Maryland. They would go well together. You know, so you have to know what you're up against. And I, I love rum, and I love all of it. Um, well, maybe not all of it. But I, um, I appreciate all the different categories. And there's a lot of rums that... Um, then I, I know their flavor profile is very different than ours. Just like you said, our rye tastes different than Baltimore Spirits Company's rye or from um, McClintock's rye, and that's on purpose, um, that you can appreciate the nuances. And they're non-compete. We're still in these very early stages of craft distilling where you're not competing with each other. You're just kind of opening a door into like this whole new market segment yeah. where people can have options other than just the, the old faithfuls, you know. It's still kind of like craft beer where you're, you're competitors, but it, it's a friendly competition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah. As long as people aren't, you know, ripping your recipe yeah. or, or stealing your unique ideas, as long as you they're don't doing need, their own. You don't need to put anyone out of business yeah, to no, no, survive. No, no. There's plenty of room right now. Yeah. And, and my only caution is if someone wants to open a distillery tomorrow in Maryland, um, pay attention to what's happening 
and and do something different because there's still a lot to be done um, and there's ways to go about it that that will keep adding something to you know this 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 conversation that we're all having about craft spirits have um have you done have, have you ever done some of the distilling or were you focused on like the sales and marketing and that side of the business yeah, the whole time? so my role has changed um when we started um i was not the distiller you know i was the front of house you know i would be selling it um and and more talking about it and then probably in like not in the first year but in the second year when we realized oh my gosh like we we have to make more and so I needed to learn how to step in and, and help out. And then when we started hiring people, we were training them because nobody came to us with any knowledge of, of distilling. There were no other distilleries that they were coming from. So yeah. we were hiring ex-chefs and ex-bartenders and <laughs> an ice cream maker and um, kind of teaching everybody, you know, the, the lion distilling way of doing things. Um, and then I, I took over as distiller, um, you know, about a year and a half, two years ago as, as like kind of the pro- – maybe a little longer, about three years ago, as the production manager of figuring out when we need things and what's going on and working on the floor every day. And so there was probably about a year or two, a year or so period where I was actually going in, firing up the stills every day, wearing my rubber boots and going, oh, cool. how did I get here? Like, how did I, yeah. I'm bruised, I my nails are broken. I to sell this. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it was just also, um, it just wasn't, I didn't think I was going to be doing that part, but I really liked it. And I've always liked physical work. And I think the art of making something from scratch is really wonderful. And um, it helped me understand it too. And so um, when I was a bartender, uh, I I worked in many different restaurants. And there was one restaurant that I worked at. And part of our bar training was to spend a full shift, a double, in the kitchen. Uh, I don't don't work in kitchens. I don't even work in my home kitchen. Um, (laughs) I'm not a cook. And it was... And the idea wasn't that we were going to come out of it knowing how to cook. The idea was that we were going to appreciate the work that was done in the kitchen. Yeah. We were going to understand that when we asked for hold the tomatoes, what that does to the line. You know, when you when you send food food back, what what happens? And so the synergy of the whole team working together. So a couple of years ago, when I started running production at the distillery, um, it opened my eyes, right? Because I had an appreciation for what you know was happening back there. But I didn't do it every day. So I really didn't know the joys and the struggles of it day to day. So when I started doing that, it was eye-opening. It also made me able to train my team better. And now everyone that works at Lion Distilling spends a day or two on the production floor starting a rum fermentation, learning how to cook caramel, picking barrels, filtering, like all of that. So anyone that works at our company knows intimately what we do so that when – someone's at a tasting at a liquor store and you see you know a young woman or a young man talking about the rum they're not just a salesperson for lion distilling ask them what they did that week i guarantee they sweated it out doing a 1500 gallon rum fermentation they appreciate it so that when they talk about our rum they talk about our rum and the way we do things not they do it in the back and we do this up front so that was pivotal for me and then like i said we now have three distillers um that that work together and I was able to train them the way I wanted to do things. You know, and every once in a while, like I'll go away or I'll do something and I come back and I'm like, all right, I'm spending a day on the floor today. Um, But, and and I love it. But unfortunately, a lot of my job these days in the last year takes me away from the distillery um, into these new markets or talking about the rum or selling the rum, which is really my job is to grow the company, um, which I'm learning because again, uh, accidental uh, business owner here more. (laughs) We thought it was a, we thought it was a project. that would run its course, um, but when people like it, you've got to turn it into a 
a business. So now, um, yeah, now I'm focused on growing and expanding and making the processes easy so that when I'm not there, that everybody knows what they're doing. So it is it is nothing short of a miracle to me that right now at my distillery, there are nine people on the clock and they are distilling rum, starting rum fermentations, emptying barrels, bottling spirits, selling rum, I've got someone out on the road visiting accounts. That's amazing because I felt less like an entrepreneur than a solopreneur, right? Like we were doing everything. And I and at one point I felt like if I stop, nothing's going to happen. Apart. Exactly. And so you still feel a little bit like that, but having yeah. a team is just the greatest, greatest joy. Well, yeah, because you can go away to Louisiana to, I mean, you're still and working. It doesn't stop. Yeah. But yeah. It, like to be able to go do that part of your job yeah. and not have to worry that the distillery is going to fall apart exactly. because you're not there doing oh, all the things. Completely. And I, <laughs> you have to know that I live across the street from my distillery. So I am there all the time. So people will say, oh, I'm going to stop by. When are you there? I'm like, oh, pretty much always. Um, but as a photographer, I never had a studio with employees. So it was always just me. You know, I did mm. the shooting, I did the booking, I did the editing. And so I didn't know how to grow a team. And so this has been a wonderful exercise. And yeah, if you want to be handmade, uh, you know, 30 hands are a lot better than four. <laughs> right. So, yeah. And then, um, so you're, you're also a president, the president of the Maryland Distillers Guild. Yep. Um, so you recent this past year. So I, I imagine you were very involved in the legislation, legislation yeah, that always was passed. Trying to, our constant goal is to, with the guild, um, we formed the guild because we all needed friends. And at the time, I think we had four distilleries that were operating and 11 founding members. And we were all kind of operating in our own little vacuums. So it was wonderful to get together, to have collaboration. And now as we grow forward and we have so many members, um, we, we talk, We had a little board retreat here in Frederick um, in January, and we talked about what our mission is. And um, it's very much education for each other, like inter-guild um, education where we're all learning from each other. So we had a barrel workshop at McClintic um, a couple months ago where everybody could come and talk about things they're, they're learning and doing. Uh, so techniques. I took the gin-making class. It yeah. took place right after that. So the, that's so there's the, the distiller-to-distiller learning, and then there's – consumer education because a better educated consumer is willing to try different things and is more connected to the process. So if you go to a gin making workshop, you said you may have not even liked gin or it wasn't even on your radar. And then when you appreciate what goes into it, oh, now all gin isn't just one bottle of gin. It's like, oh, the nuances, well, what botanicals are in here? And suddenly you're trying all the gins that are out there and appreciating them on a different level. So that's huge for us. Um, that and then also the legislative side, um, making the environment in Maryland as friendly as possible for us to sell our spirits, right? We are, we are manufacturing. We've all brought back spirits manufacturing. We have a little industry now and all these booze factories all over Maryland, <laughs> and that needs to be celebrated. That is a very, very cool thing. And uh, so we've made some big strides in the last couple of years. You know, you can find your uh, local distillery selling at a farmer's market, which was not possible when Lion Distilling opened. We couldn't do anything. We could go to events and stand at a table with closed bottles and talk about how delicious it was. We couldn't even pour. <laughs> the brewers next to us would be pouring. The wine would be pouring. We'd be at like a governor's ball or a Eastern Shore promotional event, and we could just stand there. Now we can do everything they can do. Um, and notably, you know, just less restrictions on what we can and cannot do in the tasting room because it's all about meeting the consumer where they are and for those who 
you know, think we're asking for too much. Um, we're simply asking for what the consumers are asking us, yeah. what they're seeing in Virginia and D.C. and New York and Pennsylvania in states that have, you know, state-controlled liquor are actually looser with their distilleries abilities than we are in Maryland. So Maryland's always been a great place to to start a distillery, but it's getting better and better. And that's the collective efforts of the guild, for sure. Do you plan on offering cocktails? Uh, we do the new not. Change? No, okay. at Lion Distilling, um, our focus is really to make rum and and sample it and then offer bottles to take home. Mm-hmm. Um, we see ourselves as a manufacturer. We will potentially um, apply for the license just in order to maybe have some special events or um, you know parties or, or, or things there. Because it is hard. Often people want to come and we do private tours and they want to have cocktails. We, we can't have cocktails. So yeah. the, the, the time you spend at Lion Distilling is inherently limited because you're, you're just tasting. Um, we have a, a bar, but no bar stools. Um, and we're in, a, we're in a very different environment than every other distillery in Maryland. So I think the cocktail legislation was key because I don't ever want to see anyone limited in what they can do. And it makes sense that distilleries should be able to serve cocktails full stop. They should. Um, but the choice to do it is very different because running a cocktail bar or cocktail program is very different than offering spirits of something that you're just focused on manufacturing. So you can do both, um, but it's it's a, it's a different job. I mean, we are open from 11 to 6 in the quiet town of St. Michael's. <laughs> um, we do have a lot of local support, but we're surrounded by bars and restaurants. So at 6 o'clock we close and we go next door to have a drink, and we encourage our customers to do the same. Um, whereas if my distillery was located in Baltimore or in Frederick, I might feel different because you have a lot of local people that want to come and hang out and give yeah. some reason to come back. I meet hundreds of people a week, and they're all new. So they might be returning to St. Michael's because they were there a year ago, but we're we're a destination. Um, and so there's a couple things. So one, philosophically, it's just not what I want to do. It doesn't fit in our um, non-existent business plan. But uh, also the experience at Lion Distilling would be different because we're really small. So if you came into Lion Distilling today and there were already 10 people sitting at the bar and cocktail, you'd have to leave. Oh, uh, yeah. So it kind of so ruins not, the discovery aspect mm-hmm, of you. Whereas I like what we are. We are we are so unique. Um, I don't think you've ever been to a distillery you know, like Lion Distilling. And I say that in a vague way to everybody because <laughs> we're all about customer service. We're all about like you coming in and learning and let's show you how we're doing it. And um, we're always active. So we're always distilling and it's always a little bit crazy. So we'll take you in the back. And uh, people are always like, how much is the tasting? And we're like, it's free because we want you to try something that you don't think you want to try necessarily. Yeah. Right. So, oh, you know, I don't like rum. And then I pour you some rum and you're like, I love this. You know, and that's that's really fun. So do you have anything new around the corner that you want to talk about? Uh, There's always things that are new around the corner. Um, We haven't talked about it much, um, but we have a new line of rums coming out. Um, I can't say much about them because I've been sworn to secrecy by my my, uh, head distiller, Brett, who's (laughs) been working really hard on something super unique. But I can tell you that this next line of rums is something that uh, is like nothing you've ever had before. Um, they are using really interesting botanicals and flavors, and they are all very culturally and historically significant that you might recognize in another bottle or spirit from another country, but you've never seen it done before in America with rum as a base. So our, our whole mission is that now, you know, for, for many years, our, our tagline was drink more rum. You'll see it on all of our social media, hashtag drink more rum. 
uh, because we do love rum as a category. But we've kind of moved into this new phase. Um, as we say goodbye to our whiskeys, um, all you need is rum is kind of our new tagline. So <laughs> what one. we're doing, yeah, so we're rum that you don't think is rum, you know. So when you try it, like, wow, this is amazing. This is familiar. I understand. But it's rum as a base. Like you're using that cane distillate to make something completely new. Um, and so we have a few that we should be releasing um, by the end of the year. And then we also, um, we are constantly expanding our um, infusion line. So the coconut rum is uh, was new last summer and now is a repeat uh, visitor uh, to the distillery this summer. Our, our uh, pineapple overproof rum uh, is, is brand new in the lineup, just got its labels and its new look. And so that's something we're offering. And we do like a seasonal blackberry rum so we're always playing around with those but oh, they kind of come and go one. oh my gosh so we did one batch of it last year it was local blackberries it was just what the farmers had they actually came to us and said we have um you know it was an ungodly amount of flats of blackberries can you do anything with these because they're ripe and they're ready to go and i was like not really but we'll take them and so we started infusing them and playing around and made a really lovely um, blackberry infused rum liqueur it's just deep deep dark blue you know, almost black, and it to me, it's inherently light and grassy, like a rum. But the richness of the blackberries drinks almost like a port. And so we only did a hundred bottles because there was, you know, just over a hundred pounds of blackberries, and that's what it took. Um, but now the farmers in the area are, are pulling together, and we'll be doing that again. So that's an annual release. So we have some that are seasonal, some that are annual, and then we have our lineup that's, you know, always there. So. Have you ever thought about making a peanut butter rum? No. I I was at uh, <laughs> I was at um, McClintock last week, and they had a peanut butter uh, whiskey made really? by someone. For, Interesting. And yeah. um, I tried it, and it was way better than what it was yeah. in my mind it was going to taste like because mm-hmm. it, it it was actual peanut butter used yeah so it didn't have that uh, fake peanut butter taste or fake the peanut consistency taste. just freaks me out though like but it was completely you... normal so i don't know how yeah. they know. what they did it was it was weird but it wasn't repulsive that doesn't sound like i want to try it <laughs> yeah it's it's worth trying but it's not um well uh, here's the thing too i would so never buy a bottle of it well, after and that's trying what's kind it. of sad right like and you know I, I i won't say anything bad but i think that happens sometimes in brewing where it's like just because we can do it doesn't yeah. mean we should um and some flavors are interesting as an experiment but i'm in the business of making rum that you want to it's yeah. your new favorite rum you can't get enough of it you love it it's so delicious you want to drink it constantly um so when we play around we try not to be too weird um <laughs> And that's fine because there's something for everybody, uh, and I do believe that. But, um, you know, it's kind of the same with white whiskey. We did release um, one batch of white rye our very first year because um, we were just so excited. We had, like, I don't know, 30 bottles of it, and we released it because it was a really cool spirit. Um, our unaged whiskey was very bright, green, apple really fresh, a little spice. And we released it, and it was fun, but I learned very quickly because then other distilleries that I was friends with would start releasing white whiskey, and I always wanted it because, you know, I want everything. And you can do some cool things with white whiskey. Yeah. But I started to feel very much like it was very interesting to taste, but then the whole bottle just sat around. Um, so I don't – I'm not in the business of collecting yeah. bottles. You know, I'm not in the inventory business. So <laughs> I want something that's very drinkable. <laughs> but I think, you know, experiments are great. They're, they're you know – 
Um, and so we have an experiment in front of us. So yes, this is the um, hop infused whiskey I made with McClintock. Yeah, yeah. It has a, re- a rough release date. Finally, sometime in mid early December, it'll be released. And it's it's a single malt whiskey. Yeah. Uh, with a lot of chocolate malt. Yep. Yep. And it has UK Goldings and Meridian hops in it uh-huh. that were in the gin basket, vapor infused. Uh, this one, this one was aged in a three liter barrel for yeah, 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 for about a month, so, and I think, I think it's in a thirty three gallon barrel at the distillery. The problem is I'm not as familiar with hop profiles, so I'm not sure. We've distilled beer before. I was telling you most recently we distilled yeah. a jailbreak beer, and I know what happens to hops when they come through in the distillate, and they're like a little bit floral and, and kind of interesting. Um, and I'm not a huge uh, beer uh, aficionado. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> well, you know, the, the it's rum. It's got my heart. <laughs> um, I don't have time for all those beers, plus my waistline to consider. Um, but, but so I wasn't sure what I was going to expect. I think I was expecting a real bitterness. I don't no. know if... So the the hops chosen are, are aren't specifically very, yeah. yeah 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 not very bittering the um that little bit of banana y taste mm-hmm. it used to be much stronger um that's from the hops yeah so the 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 hop characteristics in it now are definitely it's nice it's really muted. light you know what I noticed first of all though the the thing that the flavor I got and I can't wait to pour you this because we also have our final batch of American single malt which is something. Um, We've done three batches of it. We were very excited. Uh, it was the first American single malt distilled in in Maryland. You know, probably we don't have any record of any other one that, that was ever distilled, but we did this really small. But it was just a fun project. Um, and so we did three batches. And the thing I like about this is it's, it's American malt whiskey, right? Um, what does that mean? Nobody really knows what that means because it's not a scotch, obviously, but it conforms to the parameters. It's 100% malted barley. It's double pot distilled. It's aged in used bourbon barrels. But I always say that this tastes like nothing else you've ever had in your life. And it's the chocolate malt. So I recognized the chocolate malt immediately in that and loved yeah, it because really good. it's so good. Yeah. It's the coolest. I mean, our rye gets all the love and all the press and everybody's like, rye whiskey, you know, they just go crazy. But the malt I like is that really better than, than the rye. It's really like, cool, right? Yeah. It's just, but what's nice and what I'm excited about is I was really sad to see our malt whiskey go because that's a flavor that I can't find anywhere else. No other malt whiskey I've ever had tastes like that. But I'm excited that McClintock's using that chocolate malt because it is really, yeah. really cool. It was crazy. Right off the still, it tasted mm-hmm. like chocolate-covered bananas. Did you get any um, raisiny notes? Because our white malt had some like rich raisin and peanut butter notes. And so when you say peanut butter whiskey, I joke because I people will often ask me for tasting notes on the malt. And I don't like to give people tasting notes. I like to say, well, what do you taste? Because nothing's wrong. But there is a distinct nuttiness, like a dry peanut yeah. buttery flavor. Um, and we use some, some very interesting malts in this one as well, but the chocolate I think is what carries through. And that's what I noticed immediately in the, in yeah, your hopped whiskey. That, that right off the still, it was just like chocolate yeah, like yeah. in your face, chocolate. It's super cool. <laughs> that's super cool. All right. I want to thank you so much for, oh. uh, unless, or, or do you have any other new things coming out? No, or I mean, there's, there's, always, there's always yeah. something new, but you know, there's another day for that, So I'm sure. where do people find you? Oh, uh, you know, all over the place. So if you go to liondistilling.com, there is a tab that says buy Lion Spirits. It's a trick because you can't buy spirits online in Maryland. <laughs> uh, we can't ship them anywhere, but it'll give you a list of all of the stores 
by county. Um, we are in some bars and restaurants, but we're really focused on being in all the liquor stores because we think our rums are really easy to take home and, and make good cocktails with, or as we said, the rock and rum, just pour it yeah. on ice. Um, or come visit at the distillery. The dark rum, too. Oh, my gosh. It's so good. Over ice, too. <laughs> yeah, that's the goal, right? That rum can just inherently be good or versatile in a spirit. But we love people to come see us. St. Michael's is an absolute gem. We're so lucky to have a distillery there. We are right behind a brewery and a winery. So you can come visit the booze trifecta in a <laughs> Maryland's cutest small town right on the Chesapeake Bay. And we're open every day, uh, 364 days a year. You can come visit the booze factory. Awesome. So thank you so much for coming yeah. out to Frederick. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for watching and listening. Cheers. Cheers. The Uncapped Podcast is produced by Graham Cullen and me, Chris Sands. Be sure to like us on Facebook. And if you've enjoyed these podcasts, please leave us a review on Google Play or the iTunes Store. A special thanks to Double Motorcycle for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening. Oh, my God. That's good.